Hey, it's Matt Bowles. If you want to hang out with me in person, I'm going to be at the Latino Travel Fest in Elizabeth, New Jersey, May 31st to June 2nd. And I've got a 15% discount for you to join me. Just go to themaverickshow.com slash Latino. That's L-A-T-I-N-O. There you're going to see your 15% discounted ticket. There are going to be multiple guests from The Maverick Show attending, so you'll be able to hang out with all of us in person. You do not need to be Latino in order to attend Everyone is welcome. Again, get your discounted ticket at themaverickshow.com slash Latino. And as soon as you do, send me a DM on Instagram at Matt Bowles Maverick. Let me know that you're coming so that we can make plans to link up in person. And now here's a clip of what's coming up on today's episode. We had, you know, the Silicon Valley issue where all the talents remain in Silicon Valley Money gets recirculated in Silicon Valley and entrepreneurs grow from the Silicon Valley because there's this ecosystem. But now that ecosystem is becoming virtual and distributed. So nothing prevents uh, John and Nigeria to, after five years, being be part of that amazing company to start their own company in Nigeria. And then you break that cycle, right? You break that cycle of concentration of wealth and skills and opportunity. Today's most interesting real estate investors, entrepreneurs, and world travelers, and learn the strategies and tactics they use to succeed. And now, here's your host, Matt Bowles. Hey, everybody, it's Matt Bowles. Welcome to the Maverick Show. My guest today is Tony Jamus. He is a location independent software entrepreneur early stage tech investor, and currently the CEO and founder of Oyster, the company that believes anything is possible remotely. As a distributed talent enablement platform, Oyster is making remote work a reality for everyone. Born and raised in Beirut, Tony left Lebanon at age 17 to study computer science in France, business in Switzerland, and has lived many places around the world since then. In 2010, Tony founded Nexmo, an API platform for building communication applications, which he scaled from zero to $100 million in revenue in under five years hired people in over 50 countries, and eventually sold the company for $230 million. Tony is passionate about making a positive social impact in the world and empowering people to achieve their full potential regardless of where they are located. Tony, welcome to the show. Matt, thank you for this warm introduction and for having me here on the podcast. I am so excited to have you here. You are doing really incredible, exciting stuff. I'm excited to dive into it. But before we do that, let's just set the scene and talk about where we are recording this from today. We are not in person, unfortunately. I am actually on the East Coast of the United States. I am in the Blue Ridge Mountains of Asheville, North Carolina. And where are you today? I'm currently in Normandy in France, in the middle of nowhere, in a forest, trying to be as away as possible from the virus. 
Well, that sounds like uh, we're both in pretty good quarantine locations. I do love France and uh, try to get there as frequently as I can. So that's a great place to be. And I know that was actually a big part of your journey as well when you left home at, at age 17 and that was where you went. But I want to start even back further than that because you grew up in Beirut and Lebanon during the 80s and 90s. And that was during the period of the Lebanese Civil War. And I'm curious if you can just share a little bit about your upbringing and growing up in Lebanon at that time and what that was like for you. Yeah. So I was born in 1980 in Beirut. And as you mentioned, it was one of the deadliest civil wars the world had seen. And from zero to 10 years old, that's all I knew, right? All I knew was that we live in a world that people are trying to kill other people. And I kind of normalized that. And if you think about it, now that I had this amazing opportunity when I was 17 to leave the country, I had this opportunity to kind of see that actually there's another world out there that people are not trying to kill each other. And that kind of enabled me to have this kind of dual perspective on people's needs, you know, starting very low from the Maslow Pyramid, survival and, and shelter to, to, to kind of where, where we are today in the West. So I had that opportunity to kind of see both, both sides of the equation. So what would you say, I mean, how did those first 17 years in Beirut shape you in terms of your reflections and your lessons for life and moving forward from that? Yeah. So if you think about it, like the experience of growing up in a civil war, while it can be a very traumatic experience for, for many people, especially children, as you become a business leader, there are some advantages to that. One of them is essentially risk mitigation, because uh, as you, you see threats everywhere, uh, and a business leader, your job is to envision the future and draw a path to that to that future. So therefore, uh, the future is full of potential risks. So that kind of your nervous system is tuned to that. And then you see risks everywhere. Obviously, most of them might not materialize, but that enable you to have that superpower of being visionary. The other advantage that I've learned from that period is resilience. And what I mean by resilience is the bigger the challenge is, the bigger the determination is to tackle that challenge. And lastly, is this ability to connect with these two worlds. Right? I mean, today, even today, in 2021, we still have wars going on in many parts of the world. And having that deep connection to what might be happening there, especially to small children, is very important to me. I think that's one of the themes throughout your career is really being grounded in that vision and those values of wanting to socially impact the world in a positive way. So now when you eventually left Lebanon at age 17, can you take us through that experience, what that was like, where you were going and how your journey and your worldview evolved from there? Yeah. So the first stop I had was in France, in Paris where I studied computer science for five years. And then I worked there for, for a couple of years. I got my French citizenship and then I was free. I, well, the world is, became my oyster, right? Because, you know, with a Lebanese passport, you, can, you cannot go much anywhere. You're stuck. So essentially that, that enabled me to start traveling. And first thing I did is I left France, although I thank France a lot for, for giving me that, that amazing public free education. Even they pay you in France as a student, they, they give you some pocket money. The government gives you some pocket money. I couldn't understand this. Like, is, is it could be possible, you know, coming from a country where everybody trying to kill everybody and here the government is giving you money to support you is like, it was a surreal. I, I thought they made a mistake. I wanted to give it back to them. And I say, no, you can keep it. You can, you can pay rent. It's okay. So yeah, France shaped me from seeing that actually there is a better world out there that can be uh, socially responsible. And when I got my French citizenship, 
I had this opportunity to London and I started to work in the software industry. And then I left London, went to Switzerland to study my business degree for one year and then came back to London, starting my first company. And then I kept moving back and forth between UK and the US, uh, it's probably like four or five times. In the US, we, we lived uh, with my wife in a number of areas, uh, Chicago, Dallas, the Bay Area. And then we decided to move back to London when we had our first child to be kind of closer to the family that is in France and in Lebanon. And actually, my next move is to go to, we were kind of relocating the family to Cyprus in, in September because it's uh, very close to my parents and it's a great place to be. And actually, because we're building the best distributed company in the world, so the CEO must be on an island to, to force that discipline <laughs> in the business that work can be done successfully and at scale from, from anywhere. Absolutely. I think that is really, really important, of course, that we're all uh, modeling what we do. And when we founded Maverick Investor Group, we did the same thing. My two co-founders and I all lived in different cities from the day that we founded the company. And we forced it to be built on a completely virtual infrastructure by not even being in the same place and hiring staff that never lived in the same city as we did for a single day. I mean, you just force it. And what that does is it forces you to be more precise in your systems and your processes and your management structure and everything else. I mean, you have no choice but to do it, right? So I think that's really amazing. And Cyprus is a great choice. I spent about a month in Cyprus, in uh, Nicosia, and I've actually taken that flight from Nicosia to Beirut. It's literally like 18 minutes in the air. <laughs> you're just like a puddle hop over there. And then all of a sudden you're in Beirut, which has some of the best food in the entire world, some of the most legendary nightlife in the world. And a lot of people don't even know. I mean, you're in France now, which is sort of the center of the wine world, but Lebanon actually has some of the best wine in the world. The Chateau Moussar wine out of Lebanon is as good as anything you're going to find any other place in the world. So Beirut is always a real treat and that's fun to be that close. <laughs> Indeed. So Tony, I want to talk to you a little bit about just in terms of your travel experiences. You've lived in a lot of different places. You've chosen, as you mentioned, a lot of it by choice, right? You're going to go to Cyprus because you want to choose to live there and to be there. You could be anywhere you're going to choose to be there. And I'm curious, as you reflect back now on your overall travel experiences, right? From the time you left Lebanon, all the different places that you've been up to this point in your life, how has that international travel experience personally impacted you when you reflect back on it? What does travel mean to you at this point in your life? Yeah. So the first idea that comes to mind here is that my identity has completely changed by traveling. And what I mean by change is that before I was considering myself that I belong to a certain place like Lebanon or France. And now I feel that I belong on planet Earth. Generalize that uh, feeling of connection to the land, to any land, as long as it's within the planetary system. So that actually, it, it, was, it was a journey to get to that realization. And because every time I go to a place, I always felt like uneasy, like there's something wrong or, or maybe it's a place, maybe it's the people. And then I realized actually it was me, the issue. It wasn't the people, it wasn't the place. And I had to kind of deal with that feeling of disconnection from my home country. And I kind of held that feeling of disconnection all my life until I now I'm 40, I, I came to that realization that I'm not going to feel good anywhere. So what about just forgetting about where I am and live more in the moment and live more and, and just stop running to the next place? I think that kind of have shaped me kind of moving around the world into all these places is to get that realization. I mean, obviously, 
the traveling is, is really enables me to become more multicultural and get closer to people regardless from where they are in the world and I'm kind of be close to other human beings uh, without thinking about, oh, this guy is coming from this place or this guy has this cultural background, you know, becoming blind to these kind of cultural differences that we were told are a barrier for us to connect. And so that, so that experience was enriched by the fact that the last two companies I've built are completely culturally very, very diverse. We had over 50 nationalities at Nexmo and at Oyster, this company now, it's designed uh, to be to be culturally blind from day one. Well, and I know you've had a bunch of wild travel experiences along the way. You started to tell me one story, and I wanted to save it for the podcast. But you had mentioned that you one night unknowingly ended up having dinner with a spy. Can you tell that story <laughs> and what that was about? Yeah. So I went for on a business trip in one country that remains unnamed. <laughs> and the last day before I leave, I got a phone call in my hotel room from this guy from the government. And he introduced himself, very nice guy. And he told me, I wanna do business with you. And I was curious, you know, what, what kind of business the government wants to do with uh, my previous company. We were a software provider for communication technologies. So I, so I came down, I, I, I invited me to my hotel to have a, a dinner and we had an amazing chat, he was a very nice guy. But at some point, he extended the offer to me to hire me and my company as a spy to use our technology to actually spy on other governments. And, and this is where kind of the conversation, we had an inflection point, I kind of pulled back and I started to politically, in a politically correct way, try to explain to him that, you know, that's not something I want to do and it's not possible. And I can tell you the next day I was so happy to run away from this country. And, you know, I'm sure they're probably listening to us right now. That, that's one of the most surreal dinner I've had in my travels. Well, I want to also get your feedback on the things that people should be conscious of as they're traveling in terms of environmental impact and things of that nature. We've got a lot of digital nomads, a lot of location-independent entrepreneurs that listen to the podcast and are really passionate about the value of travel and many of the things that you just articulated, but they're also very socially conscious, right? And I want to just get your reflections about the socially conscious and environmentally conscious things that we should consider and how we can be more conscious world travelers? Yeah, it's a good question, Matt. I was having the chat this morning with, with my colleagues uh, at Oyster. We're talking about our travel experiences and, and how cheap travel was. I mean, the cheapest flight I took from London to Copenhagen it was eight pounds. It's like around $10. And it's clear that there's no way that the environmental impact of that flight was integrated in the price. And it got me reflected as well as like before when I was at Nexmo, we were semi-distributed company, but we had headquarters in San Francisco in the UK. And I spend my time like for sometimes for just one meeting, I had to kind of to go take a flight and go do that meeting because flight was so accessible to us in business. And I'm now looking back at my behavior, I realized actually that we really have to think twice before making the flight you know, to make sure that it's necessary to do it. Obviously, there there is some necessary movement of people that is required, but if you can now with a new with kind of the world moving to work from anywhere and the new methods of virtual collaboration, I think more meeting has to become virtual and less meeting has to become physical and requires travel. And even like we talked about moving to Cyprus earlier, I was having a chat with with some of the the, the Cypriot government recently, and they all use Zoom. So who could imagine? 
a government meeting can happen virtually. And even now, government have to adopt this, which is like the least kind of innovative, we think that the least innovative organization out there. So yeah, I mean, my, my recommendation is, is think twice. And if you can replace any travel with a virtual communication, then, then please do it. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a really huge benefit to the remote work trend, right? Is that we're actually creating a huge positive environmental impact by cutting down people's commute times to the office and back, by cutting down the need for business travel, by having these virtual communication mechanisms. And, you know, I, I know that's a core part of one of your larger goals and global visions in terms of what you're contributing with Oyster. Before we get into that, though, I want to sort of trace a little bit of your entrepreneurial journey, because before you founded Oyster, you built and scaled Nexmo to over $100 million in five years, and then you ended up selling it for $230 million. And I want to get into that story. And maybe just as a background, can you, when you think back through this whole journey that we've talked about so far, where do you trace your entrepreneurial trajectory? Because there's a lot of computer science folks and engineers that are absolutely not <laughs> entrepreneurs and, and CEOs and things of that nature. So when you think back on, on your entrepreneurial trajectory, where did that come from? And what was that journey like that led you to founding Nexmo? Yeah, so my entrepreneurial desire came from seeing my grandfather. I had the chance to meet him till I was seven. And then he passed away and he was my role model and he was an entrepreneur. Back in the days, he went to Kuwait and back in the 60s and, and was a major developer of real estate there. And he had like, he was a very respected figure in, in our village and he like hired half of the village people. And so I was always kind of very influenced by him. And even today, although I've only known him for seven years. So with that idea in mind, I've worked for four years after university in the telecom industry. And I moved quickly from engineering to, to business development. And I was talking to customers on the front line. The company I used to work for was one of the pioneering of text messages for businesses, for B2B. They gave me this project called the API project. That was back in 2008. I've implemented the project. We had some beta customers on it and customers loved it. But for some reason, this company decided to shut down that program. But I knew, I knew that that was the future of this industry. After I graduated from, from business school, one and a half year later, I decided to, to start my business, which is actually a hard choice to do because when you go to business school, you, you're going to pay a lot of money and then you have debt and you have to pay them. And actually, I waited until I had a job offer from a large telecom multinationals company. And this is where I had the confidence to say, okay, you know, let's do it. Let's do it. This is going to be the time to do it. I don't want to defer my life plan if I get stuck into... Uh, the corporate life, then it might not be, there might not be a way back to this. Uh, I was fortunate to have an investor at that time. And that was telling me, you know, if you do this, I'll invest with you. And I called him and I said, you know, should, should we go? And he said, yes. And then I decided to drop this job offer and start Nexmo back in uh, 2010. That's incredible. And scaling it to $100 million in revenue in five years is really quite something. I want to dive into that a little bit. And let's maybe start with this. I mean, what is the process for identifying a void in the market that is so great and creating a product that is so profoundly useful and in demand that you knew it would have the potential to get to $100 million in revenue? Because it's a tiny, small number of companies that ever get to $100 million in revenue. So what's the process for identifying something that has the potential to get to that level? In my case, it was two things. It was timing and removing friction. 
so timing because when I started the company, it was an API business for, for text messages in the beginning, and it evolved to become a full communication platform. APIs were new. Uh, the, the kind of the, the trend of the API economy was at the beginning, and uh, so the timing was right from that point of view. And the second, the second area that enabled me to to grow that that fast was removing the barriers for innovation in that space and targeting software developers. Because before Nexmo, uh, if you wanted, let's say you're a bank and you wanted to integrate with all these telcos to send a text message of an alert or a bank statement or whatever. Uh, you had to kind of hire a system integrator, go talk to various carriers uh, like AT&T and Verizon and spend six months of negotiation and technical integration. What I did is I said, okay, well, we will do that work on the back end. We will connect to all the carriers around the world. And then we're going to provide you with a very simple API with five lines of code and five minutes. Any basic developer can actually build an application. And that what happened is actually it dramatically lowered the barrier and the cost to innovation. And, you know, there's hundreds of thousands, not millions of actually developers that in the world, and they all need to include some sort of communication technology within their application. And that was kind of the first few customers that, that really pushed this company into a new orbit of revenue were all these messaging apps, uh, WeChat in China, WhatsApp, Viber. Line in Japan, Kakao in Korea. When we closed, I closed one of these customers first, and then I realized actually they became our biggest customer overnight. So we went and closed all the other networks because these guys want one. They they had a global, their global user base, and they wanted to send text messages to over two hundred countries. They didn't want to deal with two hundred countries and two hundred telcos, and so we gave them a solution that was really disruptive to their business, and and they came and adopted in mass, and that's how kind of enable us to win that segment in the market and yeah, and grow the business very fast. Well, I know you also were in over 50 countries in terms of your staff that you hired all around the world for this. And it's just an extraordinary operational achievement as well that you were able to grow from zero to nine figures in under five years. So when you think about, you know, as a CEO and, you know, actually building the infrastructure and the operations at that speed and scale, what were some of the key leverage points looking back on it that enabled you to do it that quickly? First is really this ability to tap into the superpowers of distributed workforce. Our business was global. We had to connect and, and deal with all these carriers in all these countries. So people realized actually we needed to go and build this globally diverse workforce. And that was a superpower for our business. Another leverage point was uh, this ability to think like a platform and not like a product company. So we started with, with one product, which is a messaging API. And then we start adding other APIs, voice APIs and video APIs later to really start thinking that, okay, we're not building a mono product company. We're building a platform that's going to enable multiple use cases, multiple customer segments. And that kind of continued the growth in the business, right? So when you create a new product, you add to your existing platform that uh, position you on a, on, a, on a new addressable market that is growing, and then you can accelerate the growth of your business. And I think thirdly is the people that really did an amazing job coming together as a team and being kind of motivated and aligned to go towards a vision and a mission that, that was very exciting and, and disruptive because we were disrupting the telecom industry. We were making the telecom network programmable. That was a challenge that many of my team members were very excited of tackling. 
Can you talk a little bit about your CEO leadership style? How do you lead and inspire your team? And with all your experience up to this point, what attributes, in your opinion, make a great CEO? First, talking about my my leadership style. So first is really being able to envision uh, what the future is going to look like and create that excitement pass to reach that goal. And that means that I always have to stay high level and delegate as much as I can to a very capable team uh, so that I can actually have that opportunity to, to work on the business and to think about the business and the vision going forward. Secondly, is really about empowering the team. I'm a leader that share my leadership with other leaders in the business. So I create space for other leaders in my team to grow and own as much as I can and be there to support them when they need. And thirdly is, you know, there's no leadership without building trust and, 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 and having a transparent attitude. I mean, that's kind of foundational to every team. How can you build a team where there's high level of trust, high level of commitment, and have ha- high level of, of shared meaning around how we're going to do the work together and where we're going? And so I think this is what determines my leadership style and, and what makes a great CEO. So additionally to that, I think what I lack is also I get my energy get drained with detail. So I'm not a very good in detail. So I think a good CEO is need to also have that ability to go into the detail, but also be able to go higher level at the same time. That kind of duality, I think it's important. It's something that I, I continue to practice. And I think another area that I'm experimenting with now at, at Oyster is a mission-driven CEO can be a superpower for a CEO. Is how do you align your business goals and the success of your business with your mission as a business, regardless of what that mission is. And that that alignment, I think my first company, I led it with a a strong vision first. And my second company, I'm actually leading it with a strong mission first. So there's a flip in my leadership style from my first to second company. I also want to ask about your tips for attracting and hiring top talent and how important that is in building and scaling remote teams and any advice you have for entrepreneurs and CEOs on on that front. Yeah. So you have to, I think first what we've learned at, at Oyster is that you have to develop a very strong story to tell the top talent to, to, they want to join you. And that story needs to be centered around the mission of the company. If you see increasingly top talent today in the world, they have a, a lot of choices of employment. If you can help them align what they do with what they believe in, then you can win their hearts and their mind. And that's, that's kind of centered around today in HR, we call it employee branding. So there's going to be a lot of focus on employee branding going forward. And the way you market to your customers, you have to use similar techniques to kind of market to your candidates. So we see that happening not only in our business, but in our customer business that use us for hiring people and top talent. And last but not least is really about in today's world, you have to be a flexible company when it comes to work. I'm running a poll right now on my LinkedIn with what's happening with Google and Twitter, kind of reversing some of their flexible work recommendations or policies. And then you look at people really want to choose a company enable them to work flexibly and not force them to go back to the office and and have the commute. And so that's going to be important going forward. I think the war on talent is shifting to a flexible model and also to a global model. I think about what Spotify have, have done. Spotify have said, you know, we're going to open up hiring globally and we're going to pay top dollar. Uh, We're going to pay San Francisco and New York salary for anyone in the world. Why Spotify did that? Because they know that first they can afford it. 
they are a highly profitable business, but also because they know that the war on talent is shifting from your local city to anywhere in the world, and the best talent can be found anywhere. And also the best talent wants to work for a company that provide them flexible work arrangements. Yeah. I also want to ask for your tips on management of fully remote teams. So in your view, I mean, any specific advice you have? In general, I'm curious about what you feel makes a great manager and specifically tips that you have for managing a fully distributed team. I truly believe that that management is, is on the verge of reinvention right now. We need to reinvent management because there is a way to make a virtual team outperform an in-office team. So let me decompose that for you. So first, there are some hygiene factors. So building trust and relationship and commitment with this team, that, that obviously has to be the same, whether it's in office or virtual. Obviously, in the virtual world, you have to use virtual ways of connecting and communicating, but essentially it's possible and you have to do it very well in both scenarios. Where you need to be more disciplined as a leader of a virtual team versus an office team is around the way you work together. And we call them the tools and the rules. So in an office environment, you can get away with ambiguity around how you work together and what the tools you're going to use to collaborate. In a virtual environment, you cannot have ambiguity there. This is where a virtual team can underperform in an office team if there are ambiguity around that. Uh, so essentially, you have to be very uh, prescriptive about how do you work together? What are the tools you're going to use? What are the expectations of availability of your team? At Oyster, we, uh, uh, we don't have any expectation of availability. It's, it's mostly asynchronous communication, and we don't expect people to be always on, for instance. And we need to tell that to people and reinforce it. And we have a playbook around how do we work together? What tool do we use for what? How do we conduct meetings? What, what different type of meetings they are? And we all kind of align with this. And everybody that comes to our company, they go through a very prolonged onboarding process so that they can really buy in and learn this way of working. That's what differentiates as well from an in-office to virtual is that this is not nice to have. You have to actually really be thoughtful about how you work together and have discipline around that. Where virtual team can outperform an office team is in the following areas. One, it's a great place to develop leader faster because in a virtual environment, you cannot do everything yourself as a leader. You have to share. You have to share the authority with others and distribute the work in a way that makes more people engaged and committed. I've seen instances where people have more opportunities to grow as a leader in your team in a virtual setting than in an office setting. Uh, the, the other superpower that they gain is that the best ideas wins because we've all have been in a meeting where we have one person that's kind of monopolizing the meeting and then you have other people that might have great ideas and they don't have the opportunity to share them. As the world moves to asynchronous work, that is really the foundation of distributed teams, then people prepare the work in advance so that the best ideas will be found and don't get wasted and be leveraged. The role of a manager has to be transformed to really focusing on the hygiene factors where it's really about building trust and relationships, number one. Then you have to be very disciplined in the tools and the, and the rules, how you work together. And finally, you have to create space for others in the team to be able to help them grow and 
I want to take just one minute out to let you know that in addition to hosting The Maverick Show, I am also the co-founder of Maverick Investor Group, a real estate brokerage that helps you buy turnkey rental properties in the best U.S. real estate markets from anywhere. So these are single family homes, sometimes two to four unit properties, and they're either brand new or fully renovated, and they already have tenants and local property management in place. So you get all the benefits of owning the deeded real estate, the physical house, the hard asset, without the headaches of being the landlord or the rehabber or needing to live near the property. So I want to offer you a free consultation if that sounds interesting to you. To learn more about it, you can just go to themaverickshow.com slash consult. And now, back to the episode. Develop them as a leader and, and get the best ideas uh, leverage in the business. That's an awesome answer. I also want to ask your opinion, Tony, on the importance of building company culture and how you have done that with fully distributed teams and what tips you have for building company culture in fully remote companies. So first, let's let's talk about the challenge. Why it's more difficult in a distributed company to build culture than in, in an office company? The answer is... When you used to commute to the office, you had a ritual. You had to wake up in the morning and prepare to go to the office, commute. Some people would commute a long time, spend eight hours a day in that office, and then commute back home. So work was actually your life. And that means that your identity, the overlap between your identity and your work identity was very, very big, which means it was easier for leaders of organizations to build culture because people associated the work with themselves. Now, as we move into working from anywhere, well, that's not the case anymore. People's identity, it has become more balanced, which is a good news for the world. Now you're spending more time with your family. You're spending more time with your community. Like the other day here, I was in France in the village I live in. My neighbor, who's an 80 years old person, had their chimney broke and they couldn't drive to the store to repair it. And they called me at 2 p.m. in the afternoon. I was available. I had an hour between meetings. So I was able to take them to the store and help them fix their chimney. So I felt more connected and more engaged with my community. So if I was working 20 kilometers away, I couldn't be there for the neighbor. So the identity of people is becoming more balanced. And that's a great news to the world. And that's what many people don't want to go back to their commute. Now, coming to culture, so that makes it harder for leaders to build culture. And essentially, culture, I think there's, we need to understand what is culture. And what I mean by culture is not really these social connections, which are important, obviously, to build trust and allow the culture to, to evolve. But, but what I mean by culture is a set of values and principles that a company adhere to. What is a strong culture? The strong culture means that these, these principles are highly aligned and reinforced in the team. So the more they are highly aligned and reinforced in the team, the stronger the culture is. So which means that with a remote company, with a company that is distributed around the world, similar to what we discussed earlier with the tools and the rules, then you have an opportunity to consciously codify your culture and align with the team what kind of company you want to build and how you're going to work together to get the job done and reinforce that all the time. And this is how you can create the culture, even though you're not in the same office. I also want to ask you, Tony, about the 
business cash flow management when you are scaling companies at this speed? I feel like a lot of people make mistakes in this area. And I'm just wondering if you can share some reflections and tips on how you've managed the business cash flow while you're scaling at this speed. Well, I think the first answer to that is hire a CFO. But, you know, from a high level standpoint, what I look at is really kind of two, three variables to keep managing the the ship or steering the ship. And one of them is your runway, right? How many months left in the business? That's really, I think, maybe the most important variable in an early stage business is you want to make sure you have enough runway at least six months before you start raising your next round. And you want to time the six months time before you're raising your next round with a significant business progress that's going to actually enable you to raise money. And that's the second variable is, okay, what's going to enable you to raise money? There there are exceptions. In most cases is your growth rate. And are you really growing at a speed that's going to make investors look at that curve and say, you know, wow, this company is going to be a billion dollar company in five years. There's no doubt. So if you can manage these two variables, One is your runway and the other one is your top line revenue and the speed, specifically the speed at which you're creating revenue. I think these are the two main variables that you need to worry about at an early stage. Obviously, as you grow the company, you mature, you become profitable and then becomes more complicated view, but then definitely you will have a CFO by then, I hope. (laughs) I also want to ask about your approach to business problem solving. How do you assess and respond to challenges and setbacks in business? Yeah, so setbacks is part of daily life of an entrepreneur. Let's say I call them micro setbacks or micro failures. There are many areas that actually we could use to to, to deal with that. One is for first learning from them. A mistake is or a setback is something that you have to learn from. That's the question is what I'm learning from this. How can I change next time? Secondly is, as we mentioned earlier, is have high determination to tackle these these, these challenges. So uh, usually you have you have a setback today, but it doesn't mean that in, in the months from now you cannot nail that challenge. But maybe you need a higher determination, or maybe you need to think about the problem differently. And thirdly, I would say is not to blame yourself, right? Many entrepreneurs, and I was there, especially as a first-time entrepreneur, and I would run into a challenge. The first kind of emotional reaction is what did I do wrong? Am I not a great CEO? Am I not a good entrepreneur? And this is completely unproductive. You know, people make mistakes all the time. And we entrepreneurs, we tend to kind of self-blame a lot because we are supposed to lead, to steer the ship and people look towards us and we have nobody to talk to, like a manager. So we tend to kind of go into that cycle a lot and it's really unproductive. And the more you can overcome that cycle, the, the better you're going to be as an entrepreneur and the more more performance you're going to provide. And, and it's not easy. You know, it's not easy. Even like for me, it's something that I struggle with all the time. Uh, obviously less uh, with, with experience, but it's still, uh, still something that is annoying. Well, I also want to ask you about your personal productivity techniques and habits For example, how do you structure your day? Do you have morning routines? Do you have evening routines? And, you know, how do you structure your workflow in the day to be as productive and accomplish the the caliber of things that you're accomplishing in the amount of time that you're doing it? Yeah. One other thing that I've been using recently is energy management. So how can you make sure that you are not depleted at critical moments when you need to perform? 
So how I do this, I do include a number of space in my calendar in the day where I'm not bookable. And also, more importantly, I completely disconnect over the weekend. But in order for me to completely disconnect over the weekend, I don't take meetings on Friday. I spend Friday reflecting, cleaning up my inbox, dealing with all the things that actually might disrupt my weekend. And obviously, it doesn't always work, but it's always uh, kind of the goal uh, that I, I strive for. So yeah, number one is kind of energy management, I would say, is important. And secondly, when it comes to productivity is there's always going to be things to do and important things to do. So the question is, really be ruthless about having a priority list and update that priority list on a daily basis. And I have it on my board in the morning. I wake up, I say, okay, is, is this a priority list still valid? We need to change it. What did we achieve and we can get off it? And thirdly is delegation and empowerment of the team is important, especially first-time early-stage entrepreneurs. We tend to want to do many things ourselves. And what we realize actually that we suck in doing many things and better get the best people to help you do them. In my next experience as an entrepreneur, I've been very deliberate to hire, I would say, a more experienced team early in the business and a capable team where I can delegate many of the tasks that, that or project that I need to do as a CEO and, and work with them instead of being the primary leader in the business. One of the concepts that you mentioned to me that you've been practicing is this idea about being able to lose the sense of time and how that connects for you with protecting yourself against negative emotions and things like that. Because I feel like the entrepreneur, I mean, negative emotions can be as debilitating as taking time away or taking any other resource away. I mean, maybe even more so. And I'm wondering if you can talk about that concept and how you've developed that and how that works for you personally. Yeah. So I, I came to realize that me worrying about the future or regretting the past was like not a cool life experience that I want to continue doing it at that level. And what helped me to realize that actually time is mostly a human construct is now I have children and, you know, children, you have to teach them time. They have no clue what, what one minute is or one hour is. They have this ability to live in the moment. And for me, it was a correlation between the fact that they don't yet comprehend time and that ability to live in the moment. I had a goal a couple of years ago that I wanted to slow down time, at least my perception of time. And today, I kind of practice that on a regular basis to be able to, I would say, move myself into a, a place where time exists less and have a, some sort of protection layer in my thought process that prevent me from taking time as a variable in, in what I do. Obviously, I still have to work with time because you need time to kind of operate and function in society and in business. So I'm still, I still worry about my next board meeting that I need to be ready for in a couple of weeks. But the impact on my life has been, I would say, better managed by that goal of slowing down time or at least the perception of time. And how do you respond to highly stressful events, let's say, right? I mean, when that entrepreneurial roller coaster takes a big downswing and there's high stress events, what are your sort of your stress management or stress mitigation techniques that you've developed and use? Yeah. So first is you want to develop the ability to sense stress because sometimes you're stressed and you're completely unaware of it. And so, so first is how much are you stressed? And for me, the body is like a sensor of stress. So if I feel tense in certain area of my body, like my jaw, my shoulders, my belly, this is the areas where I can feel mostly the stressful feelings. 
So that enables me to be conscious that I'm, I'm stressed. And then, then the question, okay, what do you do about it? For me, there's a number of techniques that I do with more or less success. Obviously, meditation is, is one of them. And uh, actually moving around, getting my body to move, whether doing sports, going for a walk, jumping, that has been useful as a stress reliever. And more recently, especially now that I'm working from home all the time, I have a five-year-old daughter. I have a nine-month-old son. And going, leaving my office here my, where, where I work and going being with them apparently is like the best stress reliever I've ever experienced in my life. And the fact I can do it every hour of the day in between meetings, it's really kind of enabled me to have this balance between you know, stressful events that might be happening in business and then being present uh, with my nine-month-old. And that's been actually a, a good surprise. That's awesome. Well, I want to move into a discussion about your current company, Oyster. But one of the main also foundational things I want to ask you in general, and you can just over your entire entrepreneurial experience, both with your own companies as well as investing in other companies, what are your tips on selecting the right co-founder? Because I feel like business partnerships are one of the most difficult things to do correctly, one of the biggest things that can uh, cause problems in companies. And so from your personal experience, as well as companies that you've invested in and been involved in, what tips do you have on selecting a great co-founder? So first is obviously complementarity of skills. That's pretty straightforward. You need to understand, and that requires you to have an, an awareness of what you're good at and what you're not good at and, and try to complement yourself with that. Secondly is, is you want a co-founder that can actually be lead a broad part of the business, a versatile co-founder. So for instance, if you're, if you're, if you're non-technical and you're hiring a technical co-founder, you want to make sure that your technical co-founder not only can code, but can also lead teams and can recruit developers and they can create a culture and so you want kind of multifaceted managers and business people that can manage more than one function or one skill set. And thirdly is if you want to pick one primary skill of your co-founder, you want to understand what is the critical skill that your business need that you don't have. In the case of Oyster, for instance, uh, marketing was, was an important skill because Oyster, at the end of the day, it's, it's, it's a story a company. But my previous company was very deep tech. My co-founder was a CTO co-founder and he was, a, he was great at developing, but he was great at managing and was great at leading and great at hiring. And we were building software developer too. So we had to be very technical. And, and that's why the, the co-founder in, in the previous company was a technical co-founder with broad management skills. And, and at Oyster as a, as a marketing co-founder was a large broad skills. Well, let's talk about the founding of Oyster. And let's maybe just start with the big picture problem that you observed, the void that you saw, and what did you found Oyster to solve? Yes. So when I decided I want to start another business mid-2019, I knew it's going to be pre-pandemic. I knew it was going to be a globally distributed business because my previous business was partially distributed and we had this amazing team all over the world. But we really struggled to do that at my first business. We had to open entities in all these countries. We had to hire local lawyers, local accountants, local payroll providers, local benefit providers. And with all the good intentions that we've had, 
to be able to provide a first-class employee experience to all our employees around the world. We, we, we failed miserably, although we spent millions of dollars building that employment infrastructure. So when I decided I want to start another company, I didn't want it to go through that pain again. So I started looking for a solution. Like what are the platform out there that kind of enable me as a startup, as an early stage startup, to be able to hire anyone anywhere? And I couldn't find a solution to that problem. I found an industry that is more like professional services and they don't use software as much and very expensive. If you are like Twitter and you want to hire your country manager in Egypt, you can use some of these professional service organizations. It takes three months to set up and it costs you $30,000, $40,000 a year just for one hire. If you're a startup and you want to hire 20 developers in 15 countries, this is not going to work for you. So I said, okay, I said, okay, well, I have a problem that I want to solve, but hey, this is by its own, this market by its own. If you can use software similar to, to Nexmo, if you lower the barrier to companies to be able to hire anyone anywhere, well, guess what? You're going to create a market that doesn't exist today. I said, great, you know, I, I could see a path like with Nexmo to get to a $100 million business in five years. Uh, but I said, like, why me? Why should I do it myself? I'm, I'm an angel investor. I could invest in this kind of companies. It's really when I realized that by making it as easy to hire somebody on the other side of the world than hiring your neighbor, that you can potentially change the world in areas of wealth inequality reduction and brain drain reduction. Remember, I, I left my home country when I was 17. had to go through that struggle to get to where I am today. And I, I don't wish anybody to go through that if they can have that same opportunity from home in their community. So... Okay, great. So, but, but let's look at the data. Is that a real opportunity? And the more I dig into it, what I realize is that there are 80 million jobs that's going to go unfulfilled in the Western world in the next 10 years, mostly knowledge, knowledge work. Uh, according to BCG, that's a $10 trillion economical loss for the economies in the Western world. But at the same time, in the next 10 years, you have 1.5 billion knowledge workers coming into the workforce. That's the biggest shift in the worker demographic ever we've seen. And they are mostly in emerging economies. So therefore, if, if you create a software platform that makes it super easy to hire anyone anywhere online, you can create that labor mobility. But you know, with, with my co-founder, we thought that we're going we're gonna to take us three, four years and millions of dollars marketing to evangelize companies, to convince companies that actually there are superpowers to becoming distributed. Uh, and then one week after we close our seed round, the world has changed in, in February 2020. Uh, so yeah, that's how kind of how this, this company started. And, and we, we, we had to actually accelerate everything in the business to be able to make it possible for companies to tap into the global talent pool. I love the social impact focus that you had as sort of your primary inspiration for starting this. And I wanted to go a little bit deeper into that. And can you just clarify, I mean, first of all, just sort of the values and mission of Oyster and also what your vision is for Oyster, say, five to 10 years from now? Yeah. So the vision is we want to be the largest employer of the world. That's the vision without employees, right? So we will have our own direct employees, but we'll have many employees for our customers. Uh, you know, not very dissimilar to what Airbnb is, which is the largest hotel chain without any room, or, or Uber is, which is the largest uh, taxi company without a car, with owning a car. So that's the vision. But what is more important in this company is the mission. 
And the mission is, is really removing the barriers to cross-border employment so anyone anywhere in the world can have access to great job opportunities. And that mission is really beyond just employing that person and giving them a, a salary and, and a payroll, make sure that the company is compliant when they hire, let's say they want to hire Mary in Greece, they don't want to set up an entity in Greece and so they can use Oyster to do so. It's really about enabling companies to become successful at being distributed. And that's a broader set of problems. And it starts with, uh, where do I find the talent? If I found a talent, say I found Muhammad in Morocco, I want to hire Muhammad in Morocco. Then how do I know to assess the, the talent in Morocco? And then when I want to employ them, should I employ them as a FTE, full-time employee, or should I, or can I employ them as a contractor? What does the regulation tells me? I mean, I'm taking the regulation risk. Here. And then how am I going to pay them? You know, there are different currencies, different payment methods. I mean, there's a, a moving money around the world, especially in emerging economies, is, is uh, there's currency fluctuation. There's all these kind of uh, ch challenges that they, they would face. Uh, and then how can I give them benefits? Like how can I make sure that I'm treating them well? I'm treating them as a first-class employee and, and giving them that experience they deserve. And finally, how can I upskill them? How can I keep them productive as a remote employee? So, so Oyster is here. That's why we call Oyster a distributed HR platform or a distributed talent enablement platform. It's really about making companies successful as they embark on that journey and making their employees successful to become great remote workers. So as you realize this vision uh, for Oyster over the next five to 10 years, let's say, can you talk about the specific levels of social impact that the realization of this vision will have? You mentioned wealth inequality reduction, positive environmental impact. Can you go a little bit deeper and explain how those levels of social impact would actually manifest? Yeah, sure. So so first, we, we do expect that through the Oyster platform, the, the talent around the world in emerging economies, they're going to actually increase their, first, they're going to find jobs in great companies that want to take care of them. You know, our customers are primarily tech companies that are growing fast and they want to hire the best people around the world, regardless of location. Uh, and these companies want to treat their employee well. So if you're John in Nigeria and you're a great software developer, you don't have to uh, necessarily go work for a local bank. For instance, you can work for the best startup in anywhere in the world. So that, that gives an opportunity uh, to John in Nigeria to not only increase their income compared to their local job, uh, but also enable John to be part of uh, an amazing company that is interested in growing him and developing him. And what we envision is that as the work becomes decentralized and talent from around the world get plugged into these amazing companies, our customers that we work with, they're going to stay in their community. They're going to invest in their community. They're probably going to create startups and become entrepreneurs themselves in their community. That's why we had you know, the Silicon Valley issue where all the talents remain in Silicon Valley, money gets recirculated in Silicon Valley, and entrepreneurs grow from the Silicon Valley because there's this ecosystem. But now that ecosystem is becoming virtual and distributed. So nothing prevents uh, John and Nigeria to, after five years, be, be part of that amazing company to start their own company in Nigeria. And then you break that cycle, right? You break that cycle of concentration of wealth and skills and opportunity. So that's kind of the, the center uh, of the social impact. Uh, then you also have uh, environmental impact because people are not commuting to, to their office every day. Their work is done from, from anywhere. They could maybe decide to go to a local co-working space if they want to, or the local coffee shop uh, if they prefer. 
but they don't have to commute hours and to go to their office. And since we, we are envisioning a world where virtual teams can perform better than an office team, then there's no, you know, there's no point necessarily to have an office except for certain tasks that maybe require an in-person, in-person meeting. As we evangelize that vision, that it's possible with a shift in management and leadership style to really get people to perform better and have better work-life balance, uh, being part of a distributed team than an office team, that model will win in the long term. And then we will have that, we envision that world where people don't have to live in cities. I mean, we are pouring uh, four times the size of New York City in concrete every year uh, to continue to build our cities. And you know, you, you know better than me, Matt, that's not going to be sustainable long term. So uh, we have to find a way uh, for not only a distributed organization, but a, a distributed economy and, and have people not to have to go to the city. If they want to live in the city, that's obviously their choice and it becomes a personal choice, but they don't, we don't want people to have to be there and, I mean, honestly, have, have a poor lifestyle. I mean, like high expensive real estate and very poor air quality. I mean, if you're uh, in Delhi today, you would lose seven years of your life expectancy because of air pollution. If you don't have to go to Delhi and live in Delhi, why don't you go to the countryside and work from there? So, yeah, that's kind of the vision of the world that we see at Oyster. And that's what everything we do on a daily basis uh, move us in that direction. That's amazing. So let's talk about who is the ideal customer for Oyster? Who is your target market? Who would be the beneficiary of your platform? Who is your customer? So our customer is typically a high growth company that wants to build, that wants to hire anywhere in the world and don't want to deal with the complexities and the red tape of setting up entities and they want to hire now and not in three months or in six months. And it's also the ideal customer is a company that want to treat their employees as a first class employee, no matter where they live. That's kind of the ethos that we, we share uh, with, with our customers. And not because your, your employee is not in the office that they need to have a poor HR experience or, uh, or a poor work experience. We believe that our customers share that belief with us that employees need to be treated the same regardless of where they are. And what is the experience of an Oyster customer? Can you just sort of explain how the platform is set up and how the service is structured? Yeah, so so we have we we have built this employment infrastructure around the world in over a hundred countries today, where we become the actually the employer for Mary in Greece, and we would assign Mary to our customer regardless of where they are in the world. So how, how the experience work to get there? Uh, so it's a softwareized experience. The customer will go online, they create an account. There's you can create you get a free account with Oyster, and we give the HR person within the customer organization a number of tools that enable us to make quick decisions and informed decisions about hiring Mary in Greece. So for instance, we can tell them what's going to be the total cost of employment of Mary in Greece with all the taxes that you have to pay to the Greek government. We tell them the risk that they take if they decide to hire Mary as a contractor versus a full-time employee. Because as you know, many governments, you cannot hire somebody as a contractor if if they actually act and work like a full-time employee. And we give them tools such as to understand how much they should pay Mary in Greece. You know, what is the local salaries for that specific function or seniority in that country? There's kind of tools that enable them to decide uh, what is the best way to employ Mary. Uh, and, and then when they decide that they want to they employ her, they go on the platform and submit her information, her name, email, 
job details, compensation details, and they click hire. That triggers an onboarding process for Mary. Our team reach out to Mary and onboard her into the platform and get her to to sign a local employment contract in in Greece that is compliant with with the local law, and then she can start working. She she will be she will be assigned to the customer. Then then Mary would have the opportunity to enjoy uh, the benefit of a full time employment in Greece, and the company had the opportunity to ensure that they are compliant and they are really taking care of Mary. So, and then on a monthly basis, and there's a payroll process that is processed to, to pay Mary. That's how the experience works. Can you talk about why this concept that you've developed is so disruptive? What is the unique value proposition that, that Oyster is putting out there? Because people have probably heard of you know, things that overlap a little bit with what you're saying. Certainly, people are familiar with freelancer marketplaces like Upwork and other sites like that, where they can pay people from different countries to do different projects for them and things of that nature. So can you talk about, you know, when you reviewed sort of the marketplace for these different categories of services, what is it about Oyster that makes it so unique and different and fundamentally disruptive and give it the potential to scale to the level that you're envisioning? Yeah. So the disruption is really around enabling companies to, with few clicks, to tap into the global talent pool. That's what enables. So it's a new model of employment that enables these companies or the HR personas in these companies to really become the super expert in in global distributed HR using the platform. Many of these HR Professionals have had the experience of hiring and managing employees in one country, usually around this, the office, the city where the office is located. And, and now they are exposed to hiring people from anywhere in the world, and they can. Now they can do it with few clicks. They don't have to call a lawyer. They don't have to set up an entity. They don't have to buy a report from a, an expensive vendor to understand what is the level of benefits that they need to provide in that country. They don't have to process payroll in 17 different currencies and 12 different payment dates. And so it's really this taking this, this process and making it like it's a Mary in Greece, this amazing talent is waiting for you. It's just a few clicks away. That's awesome. All right. So, Tony, for listeners that may be interested in learning more about Oyster and getting started, what is the process? What is the first step to doing that? Where should people go? It's a, uh, oysterhr.com and we'll be happy to to help anyone who's interested in uh, tapping into the global talent pool. Awesome. So we're going to link that up in the show notes. That'll be in one place at themaverickshow.com. And Tony, at this point, are you ready to move in to the lightning round? Let's go for it, Matt. Let's do it. The lightning round. All right. What is one book that has significantly impacted you over the years you'd most recommend people check out? The book that I recommended everybody in my previous company to to read, and that that book was called Leadership and Self-Deception. It's like a leadership development book. But what I like about that book is essentially that it's a story and you can read it in two hours and it's entertaining and these concepts are not very difficult to grasp. All right. What is one travel hack that you use that you can recommend to people? If you travel and you're jet lag, one of my colleagues one gave me this, this supplement called melatonin that is available in the US and in many countries, but in the US you can get it off the counter. 
and that didn't solve my full jet lag issues, but at least it, it really improved it by at least 30, 40%. Awesome. Who is one person that you've never met who's currently alive today that you would most love to have dinner with, just you and that person for an evening of dinner and conversation? I would pick any person from Oyster, my company, because 95% of the people we've hired have never met. And we're so desperate to meet each other. We've been working on this amazing project for a year now, and I've never met, I would say, 95% of my team. It's insane. Like we have an oxytocin deficit. Like we just want to hug each other. Obviously, we can do it in the US because of other laws, but we can't wait. That's amazing. What a great answer. All right, Tony, knowing everything that you know now, if you could go back in time and give one piece of advice to your 18-year-old self, what would you say to 18-year-old Tony? Relax. You've already made it. That's awesome. All right. Of all the places that you have traveled in the world, what are your top three favorite travel destinations you'd most recommend people check out? So I definitely recommend Cyprus because the nature is amazing. I mean, they take care of the environment. It's uh, it's just beautiful blue sky and, and, and blue sea. And the food is, as you know, is, is, is pretty awesome. So definitely Cyprus is one of my favorites. The other one is the Bay Area. I mean, I, I, in, in the U.S., in, in California, for me, I've lived there for years. And every time I go there, I feel the sense of freedom and connection uh, with the environment that I don't feel uh, elsewhere. So uh, uh, that's definitely one, one of my favorite places. And I would say, you know, my third destination and that actually became my favorite right now is where I am, is in Normandy, in France, especially if there's any lockdown, because... Usually, it's, it's, not, it's, not, it's, it's a very rural area. It's very uh, less dense. But, but the other day, last week, the, the weather was amazing. We went to the beach on the Atlantic. There was nobody on the beach. It was empty, but it was so beautiful. If the world continue, I hope not. But if the world continue, I mean, that's a destination where you really can escape and, and feel connected. So yeah, so Cyprus, Bay Area, and Normandy, France. Awesome. All right. Last question. What are your top three bucket list destinations? These are places you've never been. They're the highest on your list you'd most love to see. Well, I would, I would pick any three countries in Latin America. Like I've, I've traveled so much around the world, but I don't know why I've never been to Latin America. And it's a place in the world that I think is, is beautiful and amazing. So pick any three countries, I would go see them anytime. Awesome. That is an amazing region. I've spent a bunch of time there. So whenever you're ready to uh, plan your trip, feel free to hit me up for some tips on that. All right, Tony, at this point, I want you to let folks know how they can connect with you, how they can follow you on social media, how they can learn more about Oyster. How do you want folks to come into your universe? Yeah. So LinkedIn is where I hang out most of the time. So Tony Jamus is my name and you can find me on LinkedIn and you can follow me. And and uh, as we said before, uh, OysterHR.com. Uh, happy to help uh, any anyone that is uh, looking to tap into the global talent pool and hire globally without all the red tapes and the complexity of uh, global employment. Amazing. We are going to link all of that up in one place. Just go to the maverickshow.com. Go to the show notes for this episode. There you're going to find Tony's social media handles, the link to get into Checkout Oyster, and all of the other things that we have talked about in this episode will be in one place at themaverickshow.com. Tony, this was amazing. Thanks so much for coming on the show. That was fun, Matt. Thank you for having me. All right. Good night, everybody. 
sure to visit the show notes page at themaverickshow.com for direct links to all the books, people, and resources mentioned in this episode. You'll find all that and much more at themaverickshow.com. Learn how Maverick Investor Group can help you by cash-flowing rental properties in the best U.S. real estate markets, regardless of where you live. Schedule a free phone consult today at themaverickshow.com slash consult. Now you can buy rental properties with tenants and local property management in place so you don't have to be a landlord or a rehabber. To get your questions answered and discuss how Maverick Investor Group can help you meet your real estate investing goals, schedule your free phone consult today at themaverickshow.com forward slash consult. If you like podcasts, you will love audiobooks, and you can get your first one for free at themaverickshow.com slash audiobook. Whether you want the latest best-selling novels or books on investing, business, or travel, try your first audiobook for free at themaverickshow.com forward slash audiobook.